very freeing when you just have confidence in what you're doing and understand that. And by the way, the whole make or break, this is the moment, don't screw it up, usually comes from within. It's internal in your own head. And once you can free yourself of that, you could actually just be yourself. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Guild Stories, the podcast where every person has a story, and it's the stories that connect us all. I'm Justin Rickliffs, founder and CEO of Guild Content, husband of Brooke, and father of five young people. And I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, who happens to be my wife as well. Hey, guys, I'm Brooke, owner of Reclaim the Home, Justin's wife and mother of five. We're so grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where we'll explore the stories of hustlers, dreamers, and doers, who are going for it by pursuing meaningful work and living life with purpose. Welcome to Guild Stories. Man, it's not every day that we get to hang with a gentleman that we get to hang with today, um, Mr. Joel Goldberg, and we'll tell you if you don't already know him, which if you're in the Kansas City or the Midwest or even a fan of sports in general, I'm sure this name rings a bell. Um, great dude, uh, super cool story, sports broadcaster, public speaker, MC. Um, and, and building this really cool uh, lane where he is impacting companies to build championship culture, which we're super excited about. Um, and maybe many of you know him as the innocent bystander of many Salvi splashes over the last several years here in Kansas City. So, Joel, man, we're really honored. Thanks for the, thanks for the time and welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So um, for those that don't know you, maybe walk us kind of all the way back. I mean, wh where'd you grow up? I know you're a badger. Yeah. Um, tell, tell us about yourself, bro. This always gets confusing for people, too, because... You know, they'll come up in conversation. Where are you from? Aren't you from Wisconsin? Aren't you from Chicago? Aren't you from... So, and I, it's not like I was a military kid or bounced all over the place, but I lived in enough places that I called home that it can confuse people. So, was born out east, outside of Philadelphia, South Jersey, but um, it's Philadelphia area, I'm 20 minutes from the city. And moved, my dad had a job transfer, moved to Chicago when I was 13. Okay. So, that's really home. I, I call home, I mean, I consider Kansas City home. We've been here 12 years. But I, home to me is also where you go back to. Where are you going for those holidays or when you're going to visit family? Yeah. That's Chicago. So um, then I went to Wisconsin, and then my first two TV jobs were in Wisconsin. So that ended up – I'm always careful to say that. I was in Wisconsin. I went to school in Wisconsin. was there for eight years. People say, oh, you're on the eight-year plan. No, <laughs> it was, I actually did it in four years, miraculously. Uh, University of Wisconsin, Madison, go and uh, yeah, go Badgers. And then um, first two jobs in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, a small town called Rhinelander. That was my first TV gig. And then back to Madison. Then from Madison, went to St. Louis, worked there for 10 years, and then came here in 2008 and been, you know, 100%, eh, probably about 98% baseball. Uh, I'll call 95 so I'm doing some hockey now <laughs> um, but pretty much all baseball and then all the other stuff so yeah that's great and and baseball brought you to KC Tell yeah me. baseball baseball brought uh, us here and that was a confusing one for maybe some sports fans certainly in St. Louis one for me and there's always the St. Louis Kansas City thing but yeah I didn't grow up with that so I don't really care uh, other than the fact that I've lived here now longer truly lived here longer in Kansas City than I've lived anywhere in my life so i've got a lot of pride um involving this city and this mm -hmm. being my home so you asked me what my favorite place is i would tell you kansas city and i've got friends in st louis that wouldn't want to hear that but this is where we really raised our kids this is a great place to be but uh, at the time i was working for fox sports in st louis 
mostly Cardinals, but also some Blues and some other projects. And and we were uh, year-round employment, um, salaried employee. And then this opportunity came up. They bought the rights to the Royals, and it was so. There were three of us sharing responsibilities there, and it was going to be you've got the opportunity to come to Kansas City and be the guy, the only guy. Yeah. So to me, it was a no-brainer. My wife had grown up here and then moved to Chicago when she was 11. So we had, she had history here. Her sister, brother-in-law, niece, and nephew were living here. I um, mean, this is a long time ago now. So I was coming, we were coming here once or twice a year to Kansas City for, you know, Thanksgiving or something like that. Uh, birthdays, you know, I mean, my niece and nephew now are, and this is how old I am, my my nephew is studying abroad in London right now wow. as a junior at KU, and and my niece has already finished grad school. So we were here when they were born. We were here visiting um, for, you know, one-year birthdays, all that type of stuff. So we had a familiarity. This wasn't, well, this could be a better opportunity for me in some foreign place. We had a comfort level to some extent with Kansas City, but what confused people was, well, wait, why would you go from the Cardinals to the Royals? The Cardinals are a great team, and the Royals lose every single year. And it, I never looked at it that way. To me, it was I was hosting about maybe 10 pre- and post-game shows a year in St. Louis and then reporting on 100 baseball games and then reporting on a number of hockey games and on and on. Now I have the chance to come here and host 300 shows a summer. So to go from anchoring 10 of those to 300 – and being the reporter on every single one of those games, I knew that it was a better opportunity for me. Mm. I didn't know it would turn into what it did, which was a team completely um, taking over this town and taking over people's lives and changing people's lives and, and all of the excitement that came with that and the top ratings and, the, um, and just the exposure from beyond baseball and TV and enabling me to do other things that I'm doing now and have an impact on a community. So... That's not anything I ever signed up for. And in TV terms, it was we always want we want as much airtime as we can get. That yeah. sounds very egotistical, but we're in this business to be on TV. You want as many reps, and you want to do it as much as you can, and not be the you know to use a you know we all want to be Patrick Mahomes and not you know whoever the backup is every single year. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so coming here enabled me to be that regular, that starting pitcher, that starting quarterback, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Yeah. How, when did you know that you were going down this TV road, this broadcasting road? Like, what that look like? Was that a kid kind yeah. of childhood thing? Was it a college thing? Like, no, it was like? absolutely a childhood thing. I can't pinpoint the date, but what I do know, and, I mean, I will say I had no idea what it looked like this because they How weren't really you? doing pregame and postgame shows right. in the in the 80s. But I know that it, I, uh, this much I know. I vividly remember either first or second grade, and I say first or second because our first grade teacher moved up with us to second grade, so I just don't remember which year it was. But I vividly remember her on a regular basis, this is at least what's in my head, for a you know seven, eight-year-old, mm -hmm. being frustrated and annoyed with me. I mean, she liked me, but coming in every day and just wearing her out on the box scores in the newspaper and what had happened in the game the other, the night before with the Phillies or the Flyers or the Sixers or the Eagles or whatever. And just every single day I had to be that kid at seven or eight years old that came in and wanted to let everybody know what had happened. Sure. So I, I knew that I love to talk and I knew that I love to talk about sports. Along the way, I also learned that I really wasn't that good at, at playing them. Uh, I, I was 
a nondescript athlete in high school that played soccer and I was average at best. But as I got older and, you know, I could certainly remember at 13, 14, 13 years old, maybe before that, being in front of the TV on a regular basis with the TV on mute, calling the games myself mm-hmm. and, and, and prepping to, to call these games and writing down notes and all this type of thing. So I, th- it, there was a dream pretty early on of, I think for me it was either being the play-by-play guy or being the guy on doing the sports on the news, which then turned into maybe it could be sports center. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's probably the path that I followed because I, I worked a lot of years in TV news and, and so I didn't go the play-by-play route. I went that. And now, in some ways, it's become a little bit of a, a hybrid. I'm not in the news business anymore. I'm happy not to be in the news business. It did a lot for me. But now I'm in a place where I can go every single day for six months and have pretty close to an hour's worth of time to talk about a game, not to mention all the reports in the game. And, and the other thing I didn't realize, certainly as a kid and definitely now, was I had no idea how unique the role that I have is. And what I mean is that all over the country, I figure there are 30 Major League Baseball teams. I, I'm not aware, I might be wrong, of any of the other 29 teams that have one person that hosts every show and does every report. It's A little bit of that is a, a product, and I call it fortune for me, of being in a market that is smaller, big enough certainly to have professional teams but if you look at our professional teams here in town not the minor league i mean we've got the mavericks we've got um, some minor league sports but in terms of the big you know highest level you got nfl you got major league baseball and you got mls uh mls not that i've tried but mls is would be a, a conflict with baseball season for me anyway and football is its own entity you know that i mean that th- those aren't local broadcasts not on the tv side so there is no NHL, there is no NBA. Most other cities have, go, go say for instance, and I'm looking at regions that have Fox Sports, um, go to Minneapolis or Detroit, and they've got a staff that is covering baseball, NBA, and NHL if they have all those contracts. Wow. They can't do that with one person. So what happens is we go up to Minneapolis, and they might have somebody that regularly hosts baseball, but they might be on vacation or they might have moved on and they're working on another sport that night. Same for the reporter. Mm-hmm. And so they might have two, three, four, five, six people rotating on Twins or on Tigers, um, you know, and, and Pistons or Timberwolves or Minnesota Wild. This is what we have. Yeah. So I've been lucky enough that they, they've they never hired anybody else to do this. And so outside of one day for a death in the family in 2008 – and six days going on assignment to Kuwait um, with our troops and George Brett and some others. I've, I've never missed a game. Wow. Don't want to miss a game. Um, because I know that the second that I give some of that up, maybe there is someone else that can do it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been great fortune. That's awesome, man. So we'll, we'll get to the to the pieces about when the Royals got hot and what that hap- what happened to the city. Um, I, think, I think our listeners would love to hear, like, the, the today Joel Goldberg that they know – has a great gig, right? A lot of visibility, a lot of a lot of airtime, to use your phrase. Um, I would say too much airtime. Like nobody should have to see <laughs> um, anybody that looks like me that much. But you know, I guess they're stuck with me. I yeah, don't know. That's right. Um, but that wasn't your first gig. Like what? Like 
I would love to hear some versions of the journey along first job, yeah. what it looked like, how you kind of had to scrap your way and fight your way and claw oh your way gosh. to it. Like, and, and, you know, I'd love to hear that. It's a totally different world. And I think it's similar. I mean, TV is so different than any other profession, I, I think. But, you know, in part because there are only so many jobs out there. So it, it really, even at the lowest of levels, there are only so many of them. Uh, certainly on the on-air side. My background in TV, and I think this will apply to a lot of other professions, is that when you're getting started, you got to do everything, you know. And so, in the TV world, I call that a one-man band. And so, my first job, very similar to most other people that got into TV, you know, like nowadays everybody says, "I want to be a sideline reporter." I want to be well. They don't just hand those out. Uh, they didn't really have a whole lot of those, by the way, when I graduated in 1994. But mm. what people were doing coming out of school, those that got the jobs were that one-man band was you're the reporter maybe the anchor too you're the reporter you're the photographer you're the editor you're the writer you're the producer you have to do all those things and so i was doing all that but i got in rhinelander wisconsin they actually is a weird setup but so rhinelander is way up north i mean it's less than an hour i think from the upper peninsula of michigan all right i think the last full year that i lived there last full winter that i was there they had collectively over the whole winter over 100 inches of snow uh i mean there were there were weeks on end where not only did the snow never melt but i mean it was stacked as high as buildings and you know you could you could the the lakes were still frozen in may so it was in terms of weather in the winter it was miserable but this was my end of the business so rhineland is a small town 7500 people they happen to have one tv station in nbc it's in the same market as a town called Wausau. People maybe know that town, Wausau Paper. That town, I think, if I remember correctly, is about 35,000. The Wausau, all the same market, that's about an hour drive from Rhinelander. Wausau um, had a CBS and an ABC, and then the NBC was up in Rhinelander. At the time, the Rhinelander TV station thought it would be a good idea to be able to cover Wausau, too. So they had a bureau in Wausau with one reporter. That was me. So I started in, uh, not September, October of 94 by myself. And the only other three or four people in the office in downtown Wausau were, again, sales. And then it was me. And I would go out every day and find news stories. I wasn't even doing sports at that point, but it was it was my end of the business. And I'd go shoot a news story. I had no idea how to develop sources. I didn't know anything about local government, anything. I mean, I, I would just, we didn't, internet was just starting so you hoped you got a, a, a fax Something. from the hospital that, that talked about some, you know, cause or charity or, or, or some photo op going on. Because I had no idea how to go down to the courthouse or, or to, you know, any of the government associations and start digging on what would be legitimate news. And I can remember one of the big screw-ups early on. I was only in Wausau for three months before they moved me up to Rhinelander. And then I think they closed that bureau, not right after me, and finally realized, let's just focus on Rhinelander. It's smaller, but we, this is our area. Own this market, yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and actually, I, I'll back up, because my desire was to be in sports, and I had zero life. I didn't know anybody. Uh, I, I wasn't just going to go show up by myself at the bar and start introducing myself to people. Not, not really my style. So, uh, you know, I had nothing to do. 
So I would tell the sports department up in Rhinelander, hey, do you guys want some footage of this high school football game, basketball game, or anything, volleyball? They'd say, sure. I mean, sports up in a market that size, they, they might give you five minutes to do sports. In, an, in a bigger market like Chicago or even Kansas City, they're lucky if they get two. Yeah, yeah, right. It's probably going to be 90 seconds. So they'd take, an, uh, they'd take a minute to a minute and a half's worth of highlights from anything within, and this was still our market. So, I mean, it was so spread out up there that the biggest high school conference for football and basketball involved schools that could be a two-hour drive from each other. Mm. So I would basically work a double shift Monday through Friday. I don't even think we had weekend news yet. And so I'd work all my news stuff, however bad that was during the day, finish up after the 6 o'clock news, and I'd go out and I'd shoot a sporting event at 7 and turn it around and have it on with my voice or just highlights for the 10 o'clock news and go back and do it again. The big screw up somewhere in those first few months. And then I would, and then I would drive up on the weekend and crash on the floor of our sports director. <laughs> so we could go out drinking and hanging out cause I had no life down. So I'd go up there on a Friday night and I'd come home on Sunday. We just, you know, party in this small town, which cost nothing. Right. And, um, and that, that was my life and, until I moved up there. And you're making how much money? $13,500 a year was my first Boom. annual salary. And then I moved up to Rhinelander, and I got in the back of some house that I, I feel like later, like my when I met my wife in Chicago, <laughs> and then I was still working up there in, in Rhinelander, and, and I drove her by that at one point. She goes, this looks like a crack house. And so I, I called that the crack house. But I lived in the <laughs> back. I think they, there was a family that lived up front, and then somebody else that lived upstairs, and I was in the back, and there was a kitchen and a bedroom and a family room. And it was $300 a month, and I finally moved out of there because it was too expensive. And so I moved in with our director from the TV station at an apartment across the street from the TV station. Two-bedroom, one-bath, total rent 340 so $170 apiece. He looked oh. like Garth from Wayne's World. Um, so that, I mean, th th these things only happened up there. But my favorite story, let me talk about how far I've come. I wake up one morning in Wausau. I'm down in Wausau still. And my phone's ringing. I don't think we even had cell phones at that point. Uh, or we were just starting to. And my boss, it's like eight or something. And my boss says, well, what? maybe he's even seven. He goes, um, did you get anything on that murder? I go, what murder? He goes, you're not there? Well, he was watching the CBS and the ABC down there, which had live reporting capabilities. We didn't even have a live truck. So, you know, you could tape something and then bring it back. So he's watching their morning shows live of some murder that was like probably oh a mile from, from my apartment. And I had no idea. And I'm like, he's like, we don't have anything. We're, so we had, it was like the biggest breaking story <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever. And, and I wasn't there and I was the only guy down there. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get fired now. I'm listening to this conversation. I'm like, my TV career is over. My dream is over. I'm, I'm one, two months into this thing. And, and he goes, listen, I'm still friends with this boss to, to this day too. He says, listen, next time, here's what I want you to do. Get up early every morning, you know, 6 o'clock, and make sure you turn on your radio to see what's going on, and then, and then you can find it. But that's the resources we had, and I had no knowledge. And so I dodged a bullet there and, and also realized I had no business doing hard news. I didn't really enjoy it. When I moved up to Rhinelander, they created – no, they passed on a position to me that somebody had left. It was essentially like the outdoors – slash quirky human interest stories. So I'd go to these small towns that might be, you know, 500 people living in a town, 300 people living in a town. 
It was called Northwoods Extra because it's called the Northwoods up there in Rhinelander. And um, these stories were beyond bizarre and quirky, but that I would do again in a heartbeat because it was just the essence of storytelling, which which is truly what I believe my calling is. So I might go to, um, oh, you go to somebody's house because you'd get these written letters in with suggestions. And, you know, in this small town, the grandparents lived on one end of the street and the, you know, the... The, their kids and the grandkids lived on the other end of the street and they had a dog that that would take a bag in his mouth and deliver it from <laughs> one house to the next and, and and like that or or they had something at this bar like an hour and a half away this resort called the uh, international wood tick races and 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 there's a lot of a lot of drinking going on and I don't know what you had to do to get into it but they put these little ticks on a pool table and they'd be betting on who and, oh my gosh and they put me up for the night uh, at the resort and Gave me a lot of drinks, and I did the story, and um, came back the next day. The last one. That's great. I was at this older couple's house, and I don't remember what the story was. It was like some kind of Christmas display, or maybe it was some Christmas train set, or I, I don't know what it was. I mean, it was some elaborate, you know, lights, or unique, whatever, yeah. cool thing. And I'm interviewing this sweet old couple. I, for me at the time, I'm probably 22 years old. I, I don't know if old meant that they were 55 or 80. I don't remember. <clears throat> and I finish up, and I start powering everything down. Interview went great. They're as sweet as could be. And I take the camera off the tripod. I take the lights down, put them down on the floor, start packing everything up. I go to take the two lights, and they had seared full holes in the in their in their carpet, their living room Shut carpet. Up. I'm making no money. I'm freaking out. I can't afford this. What am I? And, and they like, no, oh, no problem. Don't worry about it at all. It'll be okay. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> it, I swear to God, Justin, it was like, it was something like that every day. Cause there is a message there. You know, I think this is true for everything. Certainly for TV that they can only teach you so much in school yeah. a- until you actually get out there and do it and fail and, and experience the stuff, which does lead to great stories. Mm-hmm. If you survive it, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I I got into this thing, and I have no idea. I mean, I have an idea, but to still be doing this 25 years later, most of the people I went to school with never got in. They just they tried, and they said, the heck with this. This is too much effort, and there's no money in it. I'm going to go into marketing or something else, which is great. Um, I just never got to that point, and then eventually it took off. That's awesome. So, what, was yeah. that, what was that takeoff moment? Um. And maybe Hard it's not to a identi- moment, right? Yeah, I don't right. know. I, you know, it, I think if I if I had to pick one, uh, I think it was getting. I got to St. Louis in 1998. I think my first day, if I remember correctly, on the job was like September 28th or 29th of of uh, 1998. I remember it because. It was the day after McGuire hit his 70th home run. It was a Monday. So he'd hit it on that Sunday. And I remember that actually the guy whose um, floor I used to sleep on, he'd take some, I mean, his little place was one room. He had a Murphy bed and he'd take some pillows from this little small couch and we'd lay them on the floor and I'd lay on the floor. And um, so he went on to work in Madison. I went to Madison, but we were competitors there. Then he went to St. Louis and I followed him to St. Louis. He helped me get the job in St. Louis. And, um, I remember 
going in with him that Sunday that McGuire hit the 70th since we were friends. And he was going to show me around town. And all I wanted to do was go see, you know, McGuire. I mean, everybody was caught up in McGuire mania. And we just arrived to town that Friday night. Actually, my um, college roommate who was from St. Louis, uh, he and his family took my wife and I to the Cardinals game that Friday night. We're sitting like box seats, watch McGuire hit his 66th. So I was there for part of that. So I really wanted to see that final game that year. But the Rams were playing down the street at the at the at the time it was called the TWA the um, yeah. Dome, Trans World Dome or whatever they called it, and so he took me with him to cover the Rams whoever they were playing game, and when that ended we went over to the Cardinals and we got some post game interviews but I never saw like, the game or the home runs. My next day was that first day. The Rams were four and ten that year, um, pardon me four and twelve. Their quarterback was a guy named Tony Banks, who was a star at Michigan State. They were awful. So that was, and I'd covered NFL up in Wisconsin, never on, never living in the town, like never being in Green Bay. So I'd never covered an NFL team on a regular basis. But here we are now. We're covering this team in the middle of the season, the Rams. For well, I mean, so I'd missed all of September. So I covered the final few months of that season, and you know, however many of those four wins that came with it. The next year, 1999, so keep in mind that this is the Fox affiliate. We uh, we didn't commit a whole lot to football. The Rams were terrible. Nobody cared. Then that spring, tra- or spring training, I'm a baseball guy now, training camp, we would never cover training camp on a regular basis. They might send us, the, they, they, they practiced at that point. They trained in Macomb, Illinois, which is where Western Illinois is. About three, three and a half hour drive, I think, from St. Louis. They'd send us for a day and just say, hey, go get some sound and come back. And I remember they sent me the day that I think that, that the the Rams had traded for Marshall Falk. Mm. And whenever they unveiled him in a press conference, they sent me there for that. And that's the first time I ever remember covering Rams training camp. Then they go on their Super Bowl run, and they miraculously go from 4-12 and 12 to, I think it was 12-4, and four, and they win the Super Bowl that year. Somewhere along the way that year, as people started getting excited about the Rams, mm. And it took over that town very much the way the Royals did here. We never missed a practice. We never missed a game. We were on the road with them every single week. And suddenly I became that guy. Mm. So I think that was the change. Somewhere, it might not have even been 99, because at that point we would split up trips. But somewhere around 2000, they just would send me everywhere. And I was the guy that was there every single day. That, I think, was the big step because now suddenly it was you're around an NFL team every single day this is you know this isn't small town high school stuff and I was doing high school stuff too in St. Louis but you're around a Super Bowl champion team every day you're around Kurt Warner and Marshall Falk and Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt and Orlando Pace and um and on and on and that that's where the exposure came that's where everything changed for me and then you know now all these years later I mean this has been so long the second Super Bowl and the only other Super Bowl that I ever covered was 2001 season. So it would have been early 2002. And that was the start of the Tom Brady run. Yeah. Tom Brady yeah. and the Patriots upset. Um, Kurt Warner and the Rams. Mm-hmm. Mike Martz was the head coach. Greatest show on turf. They were not never supposed to lose. That was down in New Orleans. I remember doing live reports outside whatever that big church is in New Orleans with Patriots fans like swearing at us the whole time <laughs> we're live on, on the news. And, um, and that was the start of the Tom Brady era and probably the last. So I covered a couple more years of NFL after that. And then I went into baseball full time. So it's awesome, man. Yeah. What a deal. And, and, and uh, I'll, we'll get to the Royals next, but it makes me think like 
there's all this, and, and I, I feel like an old man even saying this, but there's so much um, entitlement, <laughs> oh, I guess. Yeah. Like, and, and this isn't an age thing. It's just, it's just this expectation that it should be easy or that it won't take blood, sweat, and tears and burned carpets and, in random old ladies' homes that you you were interviewing <laughs> oh. about about whatever small town thing it was, right? And and this kind of you know what I'm picking up from you is this relentless, yes. consistent, show up, do the work, not glamorous, really gritty, yep. and just just getting back up to bat the next day. That, uh, yeah, that 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 was it. And I don't know, I don't fully remember. I don't know that I ever had a moment where I wanted to quit per se that, that's not true in st louis i got passed over for the weekend anchor job and and at that point was just i mean i just remember being so shocked and and actually in rhinelander too i got passed over for the weekend mm-hmm. job and and so there, there were moments where you're like wait a minute if i can't get this but i was never questioning being in the profession in terms of it being something i enjoyed and, and loved so the only questions ever came inside my head of am I good enough do people think I'm good enough am I as good as the competition that type of thing where with age I think a lot of us get this way I really don't care what the competition's doing I mean if I need to do something better it's a little different too like I, like I, I don't feel like I have any competition with Royals we're not competing against another network so that is a nice place to be but I also don't look at other broadcasters the way I used to saying boy I don't think I'm as good as them am I in the right place mm-hmm. or not I'm just confident with what I do, and, and it's not always good either. I mean, I, we've got good days and bad days. But there was just always this resolve that this is what I'm going to do, and I don't know what else I'm going to do, and so I'm going to keep pushing forward. But there were plenty of moments early on in St. Louis, or, or well, yeah, in St. Louis too, but in Rhinelander, in Madison, and even in St. Louis, where really I, I would say that until I got to, uh, to Kansas City, I never really had the – job I wanted to mm. but it was a little bit of the opposite of entitlement because I felt like this was part of the process I don't think I said it that way at the time I don't know that I fully understood process I just understood the importance of paying dues and working hard to get to where I wanted to get but I I was if I was happy because I was in the field I wanted to be in and and you know kind of living the dream I never quite had the exact role I wanted mm. until I got to Kansas City so it was always the backup role. It was always in in Rhinelander. I was the number three person. Then I moved up to weekend sports anchor, and then that's when I got passed over for the main sports gigs because people were there was a lot of turnover there. Mm. It was, we were all young, you know, 22, 24, 25 years old. Then I got to Madison, and they created a position for me because I'd been an intern there in college, and it was basically a producer slash you can go report on some high school sports. So my exposure on TV was not as much as I wanted. Mm-hmm. I was the low man on the totem pole. Um, eventually moved up, I think, to weekend anchor there, if I remember correctly. or Maybe I was the number three. Then I got to St. Louis, and I was the fourth on a four-person staff again. And nobody has uh, an on-air staff of four in tv news for sports anymore that, that that's gone and um so my opportunities even in st louis were so-and-so's on vacation you get two days to anchor and as, as somebody that was younger still in my 20s that i and this is a lesson for everybody by the way um because those opportunities were so limited 
I put all the pressure of the world on myself. You have to get it right today or tomorrow, or it might be another month or six weeks till you do this again. And how are you possibly going to put a resume tape together and go somewhere bigger if you don't have anything good? It's the same thing that kids do in school too. And so I, I'm asked all the time by kids for advice and I'll say, do everything. doesn't matter whether it's basketball or lacrosse or wrestling or gymnastics or swimming and, and understand that it's possible nobody's even watching or somebody's parents are and that's it. And it doesn't matter. Just keep doing it over and over again and don't look at it as the, uh, the you know, the, the means to an end and, and your big moment. It's just the next one. And once, and, and it's easier for me to look at that now because sure. if I have a bad show today, today meaning during baseball season, unless it's really catastrophic, and there might be one or two a year where I'm a little upset with myself, I just move on to the next one. There's going to be 299 more in the year. So it's just riding a bike. It's just going to the office. It's just another meeting like it would be for anybody. You know, do you, have, do you get nervous, Joel? No, I don't ever get nervous. But I've also done it thousands and thousands of times. That was not the case when I was younger. And so I put so much pressure on myself to get it right, and it rarely went right. And um, it's very freeing when you just have confidence in what you're doing and understand that. And by the way, the whole make or break, this is the moment, don't screw it up, usually comes from within. It's internal in your own head. And once you could free yourself of that, you could actually just be yourself. I don't know if that all makes sense. but Dude, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. That might be our opening I wish, show quote, bro. I, I, wish so I, I wish I figured that out, you know, before I got into my later 30s or 40s or I don't remember when I figured that out but it, it, I figured that out here for sure I figured that out here because even when I left St. Louis r rotating with two other guys I didn't get I got a lot of reporting opportunities but I didn't get all of the the anchoring and hosting opportunities now it's not an issue that's huge man so you come to KC in 08 um leave the Cardinals come to the come to the Royals you go from 10 shows to 300 um I, it's a big part of your life but tell us the royal story. Like when, when people say, hey, man, like you have this cool gig and they talk about Salvi Splash and they talk about the World Series and like bring us into what that looks like. What's that role like for you? What's that transition been? What's the, the power of what happened in, the, in this city during those four or five years? Yeah, I mean, it's everything changed. I, I was lucky coming here in 08. Other than having to kind of erase the whole stigma of you're a St. Louis guy, you're not a Kansas City guy. And you're like, well, actually, I'm a kind of a Wisconsin right. guy, kind of a Chicago guy. Kind right. of a I'm Philly not guy. a St. Louis guy. <laughs> I mean, so I was still to, the, yeah, still to this day, I say, look, I, I have nothing against St. Louis, but I, I just, I worked there. Yeah. And, and my kids were born there, and then we certainly have some friendships there, and we're, we're still big Blues fans, but they don't have an NFL team now yeah. anyway. Yeah. Uh, I don't care about the Cardinals. I'm, I don't live in that world. So, you know, coming here, I did need to convince people that I was one of them mm. and, and and ultimately you do that by just being yourself and 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 hopefully being vulnerable and, and letting people get to know you more than fans that was true for our crew we we have and everybody says this I, I think everywhere but we have the most amazing crew mm. when everybody else says that everywhere you go I'm I'm not saying they're lying but I hear about all of their issues because most places we go, you know, with the Royals, they'll tell us, man, you guys, you guys have something special in Kansas City that we don't have here. And I think it's because, you know, it's really hard to get on our, on our show in terms of our crew. 
people might not know this, but in baseball, and I think it's true in basketball and hockey too, that there are two sets of crews at every game. Unless it's a national game, if, if Sunday Night Baseball, ESPN's sure. coming in, okay, that's the game. But if you're going, let, let's just take, I think opening day this year is against Seattle, I think. But we open in Chicago March 26th. We don't travel our whole crew with us. Mm. You know, it's all the broadcasters that everyone sees, and there are about seven guys on our crew, director, producer, pregame, postgame producer, our graphics guy, um, our stats guy, and uh, missing one other, but that, that's okay. And the rest of it, think about all the camera people and the audio people and um, stage manager and, and you know the lighting and all, all this type of stuff. You pick those up with whatever town you're in. Interesting. So there's what we call in the business the home show and the road show. More times than not, you go on the road and that road show is sort of the the guys that aren't on the home show. And I'm not saying that they're sure. better or worse because there's some cities actually where the road show, maybe they don't want to be involved in the home show. Maybe it's too cumbersome. Maybe the talent's too difficult to work with. Who knows what? What I know is that our home show here, every single person on it cares about the Royals. They care about our product. They care about each other. They're friends. There's um, there's not that well you're you know you're behind the scenes your talent you're everybody gets along and I see it other places it's not like that mm. so we've got this incredibly unique situation here where there's just incredible pride for Kansas City mm. I felt like when I came in and I actually recognized this right away I felt like when I came in I needed to be able to win them over. And be one of them. And and when they brought me in, this was the first year of the Royals TV contract, it was all Kansas City people that they hired. Ryan Lefevre was already here. Paul Splitoff was already here. Um, they brought in Frank White to be my partner. That helped me tremendously sure. because I'm sitting next to Frank White. So there's instant credibility with the fans. What also helped me was there was no pre- and post-game show for the most part before I started. So I wasn't replacing Clean anyone. Yeah. When Ryan Lefevre yeah. came here, he was replacing Fred White, I believe. And, you know, he's replacing mm -hmm. a, a radio legend there. So I didn't have to replace anyone. I'm surrounded by Frank White and Paul Splitorf. Um, I got along with them great. And so that helped me. But I still had to win over that crew. And they had hired me. The director they hired was from St. Louis. And the producer that worked with me was from St. Louis. I didn't know that. Mm. That didn't go over very well because mm. our bosses are out of St. Louis. What do you do when you hire? You hire what you know. And so they hired the three of us. The other two guys um, moved on after the first year, whatever whatever happened, and I'm still here. Mm. I, I had to convince everybody that, look, I'm, I'm living here. I'm relocating here. I'm moving here. my family here. Yeah. People would say all the time, even outside of our crew, like, so are you going back to St. Louis in the offseason? No, this is my home. Mm. And so I think there's been a long process from then to now of just uh, becoming part of this community, like anybody would anywhere else. Mm. And, and once, I feel like once people recognize that, like, look, I'm, I consider myself a Kansas Cityan. Um, now that doesn't mean that they're all going to like me and, you know, it's a subjective business, but you do, I think you build a lot of equity just within the community. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you get to the run, and that changed everything in this town. Oh, man. 
because it doesn't matter whether you're a sports fan or not. When everyone is talking about it, and that when when that's all anyone can talk about and think about is this magical baseball team for two years, that's unique. And that's how we ended up with the highest ratings in the major leagues in baseball. That's how suddenly I couldn't go anywhere in town without people wanting yeah. to talk about, you know, the Royals or this move or that move in the grocery store. And to this day, that's still the case. It's awesome. Yeah. So awesome. Um, what was it like when beyond the attention and the ratings and what did it do from a, maybe even kind of a meaning or a purpose or, a um, you know, the new Royals owner has talked, has used this word, which I really like the stewardship of a community Mm -hmm. asset, which I think is really cool. Um, in, in many ways, you held the literally held the microphone for a fan base and, and could represent. Um, I mean, you're there with Paul Rudd, you're there with Salvi Perez, like you're there with Haas, right? Like, um, for for little kids all across the region, they look to you to to give them that experience. Like, did that feel any different? Was the weight different, or was it? Hey, today's no different than reporting on the Tick Festival. I mean, of yeah. course, the emotions are different, but from a Hey, I, I got to show up and do my job today, regardless yeah. of the emotions. I don't know that there was ever, in my mind, any more weight on it. Um, there was certainly a knowledge that more people were watching, but I, that to me that was energy. I mean that that meant, and I, I think I'd almost view it the other way. Maybe one of the biggest challenges of the last two years has been that the team has struggled. So. And people have asked me this. It's a good question. H- how do you get up for this after having been through all of the, mm. the highest of times? Mm. And and so to me, that, that goes back to a message I learned from Paul Splitorf, um before he passed um, in 2011. Actually, it was my first year in 08 where I'd, I was like a fan. I'd get all mad about losses. And, you know, I mean, I, I got to know these guys. And so I'd live and die by the wins and losses. And then he pulled me aside one night and said, man, you got you to gotta chill out on that. He said, there are a lot of important people that are paid a lot of money to lose sleep over those losses, and you're not one of them. Mm-hmm. And that sounds you know, pretty black and white and, and pretty, um, I don't know, a little bit blunt, which, which Split could be, as, as great of a guy as he was and as funny as he was. He, he cut through all that stuff. He, that, that, was, that was his mom and him, like, you know, look. Here's the truth. But it is. Hey, this is this is it. That came through in his play by play sometimes too. Yeah, well, he could be yeah. blunt. Yeah. And um God, one of the greatest people that I ever knew. But what I learned from that was that we've got a job to do regardless of the result. And so it's on you to to be able to get to where you need to be. Mm. And I think that could apply to everybody too. I mean, you know, we have good days, we have bad days. And and so how can you be productive on the bad days? How can you still be productive? I've never cared about how many people are watching. If, if at least one person's watching, and it took, but it did take me a while to to fully understand the magnitude of this. I talk about this in my speeches some, that over the years, you start hearing stories, and even t- to this day now, somebody will come up at event or an event or whatever and say, you know, um, during the World Series run or during blah blah blah, my father who recently passed used to sit with me every single night and and it'll always be some like amazing jaw dropping story like wow what a and and to think that that I might have had a small part in that. So there's somebody watching that's in a hospital bed. I've heard this before. Hey, my ninety year old grandmother is in the hospital or 
You know, my, my dad's in hospice. And the only thing that makes him happier that he looks forward to is watching you guys on TV. I think, okay, on the worst of days, troops overseas. I'm thinking about this a lot right now with what's going on over in the Middle East and having visited over there. They don't care what the result is. Yes, they'd like for the Royals to win. But more importantly, if they're going to stay up and get up in the middle of the night to watch the Royals from 3 in the morning till 6 in the morning, they just want a, they want a distraction. Yeah. I'm Having been over there now in Kuwait, you're surrounded on some of those bases by nothing but sand. And you look out and there's nothing. But they can go into a room or get online and watch that game. It's on the American Forces Network. Yeah, the win would be good, but it's so much more. So I owe it to those people, and we all owe it to those people to deliver something. And look, there's some bad broadcasts. There's some bad games. There's some stuff where my partner, Jeff Montgomery, and I will look at each other and be like, what are we going to talk about tonight, and how is that going to be any different than the last three nights? Yeah, That's part of it. Yeah, But I think more than anything, this is something I never understood. There is so much responsibility to what I do. There is such privilege to what I do. I mean, think about this. I I travel wherever the Royals go. And yeah, charter planes. Like, do you get to fly in the planes with the players? Not that big of a deal. Very convenient, though. Because anything else becomes routine, and it's what was once, oh, my, this is so cool. It, it's part of it. It's, it's part, part of, of it. It, yeah. it. It's I don't know how if you flew on Chiefs planes ever or anything like that. Not as many as you, bro. But it's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, of course. The football stuff, I used to fly with the Rams, and that was still like, this is a lot of food. Oh, um, anyway, it is still in baseball too, but not like the level of those football guys. But uh, it's just part of my routine. It's part of what I do. But I do think all the time, I'm, I'm walking onto this field and wherever it's at, and we'll always have Royals fans on the road. During 14 and 15, a lot of Royals fans on the road, 16. Um, less now, but still people make vacations out of it. But the majority of people that are watching us around the world, and certainly in Kansas City, are not there. And they don't have when we're on the road the opportunity to just run over to Kauffman Stadium and you know and get some upper deck seats, some general admission seats. So how are they going to watch that game? Only one way: us. That's pretty big to me. A pretty big responsibility. Absolutely. And so that's that gets beyond. This is so cool. I'm living my dream. It, that that is. Wait a minute. I've got I've got a responsibility to, to do my job as best as I can, because there are people that are relying on it. Yeah. And man, I think it's so cool to think, um, even your specific story, but I think it echoes, I think that arc is pretty typical for, for folks as, as we get older and we experience life. And as we raise kids that, that, you know, those early career days, which is nothing wrong. It's just a part of it. The early career days are very much about how can Joel get more airtime? How can I get a job that gets me on TV right. and and shows my beautiful face? Um, and, okay. and then it, and then at some point, and maybe it's not even so black and white or clear cut, but at some point that transitions into this responsibility. I love that word you use. Like this is a responsibility for me to communicate this, um, which I think segues us perfectly into the the. There's plenty of other areas of your life, but this other kind of growing area, which I'm fascinated by, because I think um, even the way you frame it up on your website is building culture and success through storytelling mm -hmm. um, in kind of your MC and your your speaking side of your life. Um, I, I, it, it echoes really clearly with me is that you've you've embraced that responsibility to not only make this about, hey, can I 
have this big, awesome career and this cool job and fly on private planes and stay in cool hotels and interview awesome people and, and, and professional athletes, all of which are super awesome. Right. But, but to take that kind of stewardship and, and, um, responsibility into this mm-hmm. piece of your life, I'm fascinated to hear about it. Well, I, you know, I would view it like this baseball and sports to me, and I'm not a good fan because I'm not a fan anymore. It's, it's, I'm too analytical. It's business. Uh, it's, but that's, that's where I'm at. You know, I, I try to allow myself to be a fan for Wisconsin Badger football and basketball to let it hurt a little bit. Cause I, I, after a loss, again, this is what, you know, split taught oh, me, man. I just flush it, whatever yeah. on to the next day. Yep. Um, you know, sucks to be in a seven game, eight game losing streak. That's never fun for anybody, but been there, done that. People ask Jeff Montgomery and I this year, boy, how hard was it? Back to back hundred loss seasons. We've been there before. We can do it. Easier the other way, but we can do it. I kind of view the the way I look at wins and losses now. Okay, it's not about the wins and losses. Yes, much better with the wins. Sure. There's always a story to tell. No matter what, there's always a story to tell. So you got to find those stories. You got to tell them in the in in the appropriate way, in a in a respectful way. It doesn't all need to be positive either, but I think it's how you tell it, not so much what you're saying. There are a lot of similarities to that with the speaking business. So I could go out there and speak every single day. I could find somewhere to speak five days a week, two times a day, five days a week, at Rotary Clubs and Chambers of Commerces and church groups and all of this, and do a 20 to 30-minute State of the Royals every day. And people will, will be interested in that. Always. It, it's not enough for me. Nobody's going to remember any of that. You're not going to make an impact on anybody's life with that. Uh, I'm happy to talk about the Royals. When I do Q&A after an event, I'll certainly answer any questions about the state of the team. But is there something more? Is there something, if, if to me it's more than just the wins and losses in baseball, well then what are those stories and what have I learned every single day in that world of sports? I mean, I mentioned Marshall Falk and Kurt Warner, two NFL Hall of Famers, two of the best that I ever covered. I was around Albert Pujols for all of his formidable years in St. Louis. I've seen Salvador Perez. I've seen Eric Hosmer. I've seen this unbelievable world championship run here. There are so many lessons in culture, leadership, teamwork, diversity, um, hard work, teamwork. I mentioned teamwork, different roles. Every bit of it applies to business, no matter what the field or even personal life. And I never really thought about it all before. And once I put all those pieces together, it was like, wait a minute. I have a lot of, you talk about storytelling. I have a lot of stories from now over a quarter century worth of broadcasting that I think can help make people's lives better. And if done the right way. Mm-hmm. So people say, oh, you're a motivational speaker. Yeah, I hope I'm motivating people, but more than that, I want them to always walk out with a takeaway. And it doesn't have to be the same takeaway. Different people see things different ways. I could go and do an hour on what's going on with the Royals and funny stories. Nobody's going to remember them three months later or a year later. But if you give them a good example and a story of you know, an effective way to build trust or talk about these different elements of, of teamwork and the importance of positive energy and you know positive people and... Um, the importance of 
of the behind the scenes role players, mm -hmm. whether it be on our crew or whether it be that 25th, you know, or now this year, 26th guy on the roster or the 53rd guy in the NFL or Mr. Irrelevant or whatever it is, people can relate to that. For sure. So the speaking thing started accidentally three years ago. I've been speaking forever. I remember going back to that little apartment I lived in in Wausau, Wisconsin. There was a high school right down the street it's called DC Everest, the, um, Former quarterback, maybe a little before your time, Dave Craig. He played for oh, Seattle yeah. and others. Seattle, that was yeah. that was his school, DC Everest. Mm. They were a powerhouse in that area. And I remember the school got a hold of me. So we're talking 22 years old within the first three months of the business and asked me if I'd come talk to their journalism class. I'm 22 years old talking to a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds. I have <laughs> this no idea. Do, guys. Yeah, I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. Who was I to do, you know, to talk about that? But um, so I'd always been speaking. But the light bulb went off with with some nudging of some friends three month three years ago that said, you know, you could build a business out of this, and that's when it's almost like I went back to school and started studying this and networking and picking people's brains and learning about businesses and learning how to be a better storyteller, and so it's all kind of come together. It's awesome. Um, you you use a word there that when when you and I first had the pleasure of, of meeting a few months ago, a few weeks ago, um, we talked over lunch about we met through, I knew you, you did not know me. I knew you like most of the market does. And, but we, we got connected on an email through a mutual friend, mm -hmm. great guy, Jerry Keneally, um, who, you know, arguably is one of the best connectors in the city, yes. right? He's, he's tremendous. Um, he gets paid to do that, frankly. And it was, it was a very benevolent move by him. He wasn't at the lunch. He had nothing to gain. And he connected us like, hey, two guys, one like actually really does sports broadcasting. One guy worked in sports, but is doing this kind of random podcast thing. Like you guys should hook up. Um, and in that lunch, you, you made a comment that, that struck me that maybe it relates to this speaking business. But you're like, man, just really in the last couple of years have I realized the power of networking mm -hmm. and of relationship. Mm -hmm. not, not that you didn't know the power of relationship, but in, the, in this context, I was like, Wow, like that, yeah, dude. And and we're sitting here because of that connection from Jared. So, um, what's that been like for you in terms of learning that? Well, it's been, I think it's been life changing in some ways, but it's it's really fascinating too. So, when I started the speaking business, I'll, I'll take all this full circle for you because the guy that introduced me to Jared is my neighbor, one of my closest friends in town, guy by the name of Casey Wright. Casey was probably a little bit closer to your age than than me. I mean, I'm getting later 40s now. But um, Casey is the president of a recruiting firm in town called Chief of Staff. And so you talk about one of the great networkers in town being Jared. Casey's that also. And, you know, like guys that just have that ability to walk into any room and connect with anyone. Like I don't think I'm at that level. I know how to do it. Yeah. Sometimes I don't want to do it. it. Those guys seem to have this thirst for new connections. It's it, it's really, I think, a blessing. When a couple friends told me to start this speaking business, I'm in my friend Casey's basement, um, which anybody, if anybody's listening that would know Casey, but we're down south, you're up north, not that that matters. Um, Casey has this legendary basement. I mean, he's a good Irish guy, and he's got this great bar down there. Awesome. And he's got younger kids, so it's always easy for me to walk down the street and hang out there where he can still be available <laughs> to the kids. Yeah. My teenagers don't know if I'm home or not. They don't care. Right. And, and so I was telling him about all this, he reminded me that he said to me, well, the first thing you're going to need to do is you're going to need to network. And he claims that I said, I guess I believe it, what is networking? <laughs> I had no idea. 
But I'd never lived a world. I'd, I'd never lived a day in the what I call the quote unquote real world. The corporate world, or the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And real world. I mean, look, I I work. We all work in TV as hard as you know, or most of us do as hard as anybody else. But we're we are in this bubble. You remember it in your sport, even even though you're on the business side of it. Um, it's a different world. Yeah. It's a, it's a, we, it can be a little bit of a playland. Yeah, we always used to say people don't show up on Monday morning and talk about their insurance agent. Nothing wrong with insurance. No, they show up Monday morning at work and talk about, man, the Royals did this or the Chiefs did this or the. That's right. Philadelphia Flyers did yeah. this, whatever. And we're living in that world. I mean, we we are we're part yeah. of it. We are. Uh, I am, and and so I didn't know that my whole life I've been networking with the players, with the athletes, with the coaches, building trust, all the things that I talk about, I just never knew what it was. As a matter of fact, the the first half of my career, I didn't do that very well. Nobody teaches that in school. I would I would go back and I would teach a journalism class about building sources and building a network and building trust and relationships because they taught you the the ethics of journalism. They taught you the right way to ask questions and the right, the right way to write. But I never understood. I remember walking into, regularly walking into the clubhouse in St. Louis with the Cardinals, Old Bush Stadium, New Bush Stadium, and never understanding how some of these veteran writers and reporters could just sit there and, and shoot the bull with, with with a player for 30 minutes. And I'm like, I don't really know how to go beyond, hi, how are you? Can I get this interview? And I finally learned how to make those connections with these guys and do it in a way that, that wasn't cumbersome they're busy. They have routines. Everybody's pulling at them. Everybody's yep. pulling at them. And I learned that really the hard way with Albert Pujols. It took me seven years. And once I figured out that I can connect with the biggest superstar in baseball and Albert Pujols, that I should be able to connect with anybody. But it involves it, it involves daily effort. Some of that effort is backing off. This is true in any, you know, any type of work. Relationship or work, yeah. My personal mantra is when I walk into the room, and by that I mean the locker room, when I walk into the room, I don't want everybody walking the other way because they see me coming in. And that's not the mantra for a lot of the rest of the media, and I understand it. If you're at Channel 4 here in town, Channel 5 here in town, Channel 9, uh, 41, you might come out on a homestand once. I mean, I lived in that world. Mm. So you might come out once and you've been sent by your sports department. You might even not be a reporter at this point. It might just be a cameraman um, who's going to piggyback off of what everybody else is doing, and they're going to send you over there for an hour if you're lucky, and and that's going to be the only time you get out there all week. And you're going to need to get some interviews that will apply not just to that night's game but, but might work out for the rest of the week or even the upcoming road trip. They don't care about who's running the other way. They just need to get sound bites. Right. i got to live with these guys every day. So my whole thing is reading body language. The more you get to know somebody, the more you can tell how available they are. The more you ask them, if the answer is no, the more that's a check mark against you. But if I could see the answer is going to be no, then I'm not going to ask unless I really need it. So it's reading a room, reading body language, reading people every single day, and then making a determination. Sometimes I have to go back to my producer and say, hopefully he's not listening right now, but say, um, yeah, he wasn't, he was too busy. And I may never have even asked him, but I'm going to make the determination that not this right, is not, it's the, not right the right time. Yep. Alex Gordon is a guy that I think a lot of people in the media avoid because they think he doesn't either like to do media or he's introverted. I love Alex. He's one of 
my favorite athletes of all time. He's not introverted. He's extremely regimented and detail-oriented, and you have to find him at the right time, and that right time might just be for one, one quick minute. Yeah. But, but I've learned that I can get that interview with him any time, but I have to go about it the right way. So it's all about relationships. It's all about networking. It's what I'm doing every single day. And and I think and and we we got to wrap because I, I could do this all day with you, man. But well, I know, that's because I, I talk too much. <laughs> I know you, you're a storyteller, man. So we're gonna have to come do it again. Um, but but I, and again, diff, totally different role, different context. I was always struck with any encounter with a coach, a player, a former player. Man, like, yep, they've got more fame. They've got more Twitter followers. They've got more money. Doesn't matter. They're just dudes, yep. and they and they want to be known, and they want to be connected to, and yeah, and and part of that, um, it, maybe it sounds dramatic. Part of that facade of that toughness or that unapproachableness, or I'm going to walk the other way, is I don't know if I really trust you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can be as a professional athlete vulnerable and open with you because I don't trust you. So for you to talk about this importance of building trust, building a relationship, because then it's like, yeah, Alex is just a dude. Just to do. He's a good baseball player. He's a nice guy. He's got depth. He's got something beyond, you know, the blue check mark on his Twitter account. Right. Um, in, in Alex's case, there is no Twitter account. But kudos to <laughs> kudos to him for for just not even wanting to go there. But uh, typically, if the player doesn't have an account, their wife or somebody usually yeah, does. So right, they they, they right. know what's going on um, to whatever extent they want to filter that. But I'll, I'll put it to you this way. It, Take whoever, any anybody that's listening right now, take whoever you think would be the superstar in whatever field, mm-hmm. movies, musician, whatever. If they were walking down the street opposite you and you walked by them right now, and wherever you're at, would you freak out? If you, if you had the courage to talk to them, would you walk up, introduce yourself, and say, hey, I appreciate your work, or would you freak out? Because that's the world they're living in. Yeah. And I understand that at the smallest of levels. Because when I walk around the stadium, most people that are there, not everyone, most people are going to know who I am. They might not at the grocery store around town because they don't expect you to be there and you're a little bit out context of place. Context is weird. Right. Context sure. is weird. Sure. Um, certainly enough people do. But I can only, in the smallest of way, relate to what it must be like to be fill in the blank, Patrick Mahomes or um, George Clooney, God knows I'm not that, um, or whoever. You're, you're more handsome than George Clooney. I'm so much more <laughs> handsome. Um, Justin Timberlake, whatever, yeah. right? And what the reaction might must be to them. But when I walk around the stadium, inevitably there's always going to be somebody that is, uh, ooh, 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 look who it is, look who it is. Or they start whispering really loud your name or even talking about, hey, look, that's Joe Goldberg, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm standing closer to them than you and I are across the table here. And I'll just say, hi, um, like I, I hear you and I'll just wave and hi, right how are you guys? <laughs> it's awkward. Yeah, The best conversations that I'll get or somebody comes up and says, hey, um, really appreciate your work. Hey, my name is so-and-so, nice to meet you. Can we take a picture or whatever? I'll, I'll, I'll on do, the show. Yeah, yeah, right. I'll do anything for anyone if I have the ability to, I really will. But it's such a relief when it's not mm. awkward. Mm. So I can only imagine, let's just say that I'm experiencing 1% of that. And by the way, my kids and wife will remind me every day that I'm not a big deal, which is great. I mean, I, I, 
I think I'm a humble person, but when you have that support system, which is your family and also your friends that'll regularly ride me and be like, dude, you're not a big deal. Yes. Thank you. I know. Yeah. But when people can just put out their hand and say, Hey, I'm so-and-so nice to meet you. Rarely does anybody ever give their name. It's such a relief. So what must that be like for Patrick Mahomes or for Albert Pujols in his prime, who, who once told me, you know what, everybody wants something from me. But once I trust you, I'll do anything for you. So that's what I've carried with me my whole career. And um, it's still that reminder you hit on it. Like, people are people. They're just, look, they're it's not an entitlement. It can be an entitlement. They have everything that they need for the most part. People give them free stuff. It's amazing that people that make the most money get the most free stuff. (laughs) And they're spoiled by it because they've never had to buy a ticket to anything. But in the end, when you strip that away, yes, they want all their freebies. They're they're catered to. Life is good. They're the ones that don't need it, but they they love it more than anyone because they're spoiled. What they don't get often is that actual real human interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Man, so good. We could we could go down that road a long way. I love it. So we we end every show with the same five questions. Okay. Um, we call it our speed story closing. So just first thing that pops in your mind. Okay. No right or wrong answers. Oh boy. Um, what's the last book you read or listened to? Um, I just finished one the other day, but I don't. I, I've turned into my dad. I don't remember titles of I'm, anything. I'm terrible at that. Like my dad used to mess up movie names all the time. So I'm just as we're talking, we're, I'm going into Audible. Oh yeah. Um, it was called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. I don't know if you've, that'd be good oh, one yeah. for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really good. Um, we, I know that's not credit, that exciting. We but. credit him for Guild Content's launch, actually. I yeah. Mean, in a lot of ways. Like, I, I uh, in a lot of ways, formed up our idea of our marketing agency based on his framework. We're, we're, we're redoing my website, and, and um, the guy recommended it, said, look, this will make a lot of sense if you do that. So that was probably the last one. Um, earlier last year, there was a book called 12 Pillars that was recommended to me by my marketing director, which was really good. Awesome. Um, too. Yeah. That's awesome. Love it. Um, number two, what would you do right now if you weren't afraid? And that would assume you are afraid of something. Like a phobia that you just... Life I mean, I, phobia. I think it'd be... Uh, if I could get over the fear, I think it'd be cool to jump out of an airplane, but unless somebody pushes me, I don't think it'll ever happen. <laughs> Love it. Me too, man. Maybe we can go together. Yeah. Um, Tandem. <laughs> if, if somebody knew this about you, they would think you're weird or have some weird, are you superstitious? Do you wear the same? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, is there anything well, my daughter tells me every day I'm weird. So that makes, my, you know, her, too. Uh, you know, 14 year old girl. Um, I got to come up with, something here if i if people knew this they would think that i was just you know, an interesting the non jewel can it be like activity. something from the past of course yeah okay my senior year of high school i was on a i was in a performance i guess you'd call it the the school in chicago they had a synchronized swimming club and i was in the performance and the only reason why i did so i was in synchronized swimming I don't, i'm not even a good swimmer there's like there's an old saturday night live episode about that too but not about me um i joined they, they had like five or six guys that were on the swim team that actually did all the real stuff and then they had a bunch of goofballs that showed up to just like be extra guys we me and my friends just did it to meet girls so i was in the synchronized in the pool, swimming bro. club 
That's awesome. That's a good one, right? I bit my lip trying not to laugh. The yeah, no, it's, just say that. That's I still, amazing. yeah, that's one I'll break out to to my kids, especially my daughter, just because embarrass that, embarrass the heck out of me. Yeah, yep. Absolutely. Yep. Um, number four, you already said this, and you stole the language, so um, maybe you can repeat the answer or find a new spot. But what is your favorite place on Earth? Well, um, there are a lot of them. I love to travel, but our happy place is Sedona, Arizona. Like that's one day where we hope to have either retire there or if we're lucky enough have a second home or something. Love that place. Um, for all the time we spend in Phoenix for spring training, I don't actually go to the spring training as much as people think or spend as much time there. It's two hours away and it's a totally different universe. Yeah. Um, so that's our happy place. A lot of hiking, um, you know, more mild weather. It's beautiful. Um, I mean, there are a lot of great places around the world, but, but Sedona is a happy place. For I sure. love it. Yeah. All right, man. Last one, a little bit of a heavy, um, hitter here. Uh, when it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? Oh man. I, I, I think at this point, you know, I don't know how long I'll do baseball. I hope I continue to do it for a long time. I certainly would love to, mm -hmm. to be remembered as, as a longtime broadcaster here, but I, I don't know what that story looks like yet beyond baseball. I just know that what I've figured out in the last three years is that I can have an impact on people's lives and this community and beyond through all of those life experiences. So what I hope when all is said and done is that, that I have found a way, whether it be through my podcast, through speaking, through listening, through um, motivating that, that I've had a chance to make an impact on not just people's lives, but this community. Um, and I think this is something I never dreamed of or envisioned. I think I have a chance to do that. So that's, that's a very humbling thing. That's so good, man. Um, so we'll put all this in the show notes, but where can people follow along? Where can they learn about the podcast, learn about yeah. the speaking, follow you on Twitter? Like, tell us. So the podcast is called Rounding the Bases with Joel Goldberg. You just search Rounding the Bases. You'll, you'll find it anywhere you get your podcasts. The website is joelgoldbergmedia.com. So that has you know, everything about the speeches. It also has mm -hmm. the podcasts on there, blogs, um, upcoming appearances, blah, blah, blah. And then um, social media, very active on social media. I've got someone that, that does a lot of my marketing. You could tell what's her stuff and what's mine. Her <laughs> stuff looks good. Mine's just an observation. But um, but Twitter's Goldberg KC. I think all the rest of them are Joel Goldberg KC. I'm on LinkedIn, too. Pretty easy to find. Awesome, man. Joel, it's a real pleasure, and we're super grateful for your time, bro. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it.